1936, Joe Lewis was one of the most feared men in boxing. He was 22 years old, undefeated, and the number one contender in the heavyweight division. Of his 24 wins, 20 had come by knockout or TKO. He had heavy hands and a granite chin. Many fight fans believed it was only a matter of time before he was champion of the world. Lewis was scheduled for a tune-up fight before his title shot. His opponent was the 30-year-old Max Schmeling from Germany. While Schmeling was a former champion himself and the number two contender, many boxing analysts at the time did not take him seriously, and he went into the bout as a heavy betting underdog. What was supposed to be an easy matchup for Joe Lewis turned into 12 long and brutal rounds of hard-hitting action. In a historic upset, the German dropped Lewis twice and won the fight by knockout in the 12th round. However, this is not just the story of the fight or the rematch that followed, a bout called The Greatest Fight of the Generation by boxing fans. Instead, this is the story of the context surrounding those fights, the story of how two sports icons combated prejudice and social pressure to help change their countries for the better. Two men who fought each other in vicious brawls, even knocking each other out, and then, against all odds, became good friends after. This is the story of Joe Lewis and Max Schmeling versus the Nazis. Shaking America, a history podcast. This episode's sources include Clem McCarthy and The Greatest Fight of Our Generation by Gerald Gems, The Greatest Fight of Our Generation by Louis A. Ehrenberg. Uh, Louis versus Schmeling 2 is often just called The Greatest Fight of Our Generation by historians, so that's why there's two different books titled that. The exhibit The Nazi Olympics from the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum. The Peculiar Economics of Professional Sports by Walter C. Neal from the Quarterly Journal of Economics, and various works from Langston Hughes and Maya Angelou. Joe Lewis is known today as one of the greatest boxers to ever live. A physical force in the ring, Lewis was a hard-hitting combination puncher with incredible durability. He is often seen as the first African-American to become a sports celebrity in the United States, by the end of his career, Lewis had become sort of a folk hero and received widespread public support across racial lines. But like most fighters, Lewis's early life was a humble one. Joe Lewis Barrow was born in 1914 in a shack in the rural hills of Chambers County, Alabama. He was the seventh of eight children, and both of his parents were themselves the children of former slaves. Joe was described to be extremely shy and quiet as a child and suffered from a speech impediment. The family survived by sharecropping, but they were still destitute. Joe's father was committed to a mental institution in 1916, and his mother remarried a few years after. In 1926, the local Ku Klux Klan began to target and harass the Barrow family, and they decided to join the Great Migration North. They moved to Detroit, Michigan, where Joe and his brother began working for the Ford Motor Factory. The Great Depression hit soon after, and sank the Barrow family back into extreme poverty. Hoping to keep her youngest son away from the street gangs that were common in Detroit, 
Joe's mother attempted to get him interested in music, specifically the violin. Instead, Joe began frequenting the local boxing gym. Hoping to avoid confrontation, Joe would hide his boxing gloves inside his violin case and tell his mother that he was on his way to music practice. It became immediately apparent that Joe was a prodigy at the sport of boxing, and he quickly became a contender for the local amateur Golden Gloves Novice Division Championship. Lewis, who was functionally illiterate, wrote his name so large on the contract that there was no room for his last name. While some believe he did this accidentally due to his illiteracy, other biographers suggest he was attempting to hide his boxing activity from his mother, and that's why he wrote his name as Joe Lewis. Either way, that's the name he would be known by for the rest of his professional career. After making his amateur debut in 1932 at the age of 17, Lewis won both the Detroit Golden Gloves Novice and Open Division Championships. By 1934, Lewis had accumulated an amateur record of 50-4 and four with 43 knockouts. With a powerful thudding jab and layered combination punching, the Brown Bomber was a dangerous opponent for any man. In 1934, Lewis joined the professional boxing circuit and quickly established himself as a rising prospect. He fought 12 times that year and won all 12 fights, 10 by knockout. However, despite his incredible talent, Lewis had a hard time finding fights. Boxing at this time was not officially segregated, but it was run by white promoters and catered to a white audience. Many white boxing fans in America in the 1930s were against the idea of another black heavyweight champion. The first black champion, Jack Johnson, was very unpopular during his time. Jack Johnson is a fascinating character in his own right, and deserves his own episode of this show. His title reign spawned the idea of a great white hope, which is the idea that racist fans were desperately hoping for a white man to come and defeat Johnson. After Johnson's title reign, promoters were extremely wary of letting another black man become champion of the world. Black boxers were often excluded from rankings, and were not considered legitimate contenders regardless of resume. They were denied championship fights and faced harsh criticism if they advocated for themselves. Lewis's managers decided that in order to combat this prejudice in boxing, they needed to create a public persona for the Brown Bomber that would appease white fans. They wanted a media image that purposefully contrasted with the controversial legacy of Jack Johnson. They gave Lewis guidelines for success that included never having his picture taken with a white woman, never gloating or celebrating over a fallen opponent, and never being associated with organized crime in any way. Lewis made sure that he was never seen drinking on camera and was relatively modest compared to other boxers in his interviews. Lewis also signed new white management to work alongside his old black manager from Detroit in order to get a foot in the door. This branding effort from Lewis and his team was largely successful. He began being portrayed in the white media as a clean-living, humble man. In 1935, Lewis won 13 more fights, including a knockout over the 6'6", 265-pound former heavyweight champion, Primo Carnera. I think I'm saying that name right. By the end of the year, Lewis was widely considered to be a future champion. Here's where we encounter Max Schmeling. Max Schmeling was never the prodigy that Lewis was, and would never be consistently celebrated as a fighter like Lewis. He was, however, a skilled technical fighter who never backed down from confrontation and competed at the highest level for years. Schmeling was born in a small village in Prussia in 1905. He first fell in love with boxing when his father showed him film of world heavyweight champion Jack Dempsey. He became obsessed with the sport and immediately began training to box, and by 1924 had won Germany's national amateur title in the light heavyweight division. 
Although Dempsey was Schmeling's hero and childhood inspiration, he favored a more thoughtful, slower, technical style over Dempsey's brawling style. He had a quick jab and was great at stepping back and landing counter-right hands. Dempsey himself sparred several rounds with Schmeling in 1935 and came away impressed. Schmeling arrived in New York in 1928, hoping to make a name for himself. He was widely overlooked by American boxing pundits, who believed him to have a padded record, with his only wins being over unknown European fighters. Schmeling quickly changed the fans' opinion of him, with several knockout victories in a row. When Schmeling finally received his title shot in 1930 against veteran boxer Jack Sharkey, the fight was billed as the Battle of the Continents. A European fighter had not won the heavyweight championship in 33 years, and no German had ever held the belt. The bout was close until the fourth round, when Sharkey landed a heavy punch to Schmeling's groin. The German dropped to the canvas, and the referee disqualified Sharkey for a low blow. Schmeling became the only man to ever win the heavyweight championship due to a DQ, and that is still the case. He was blasted in the newspapers and on the radio. He was nicknamed the Low Blow Champion and was disparaged across both America and Europe as an embarrassing and undeserving fighter. After his first mandatory title defense, Schmeling would go on to lose his belt in a controversial split decision rematch with Sharkey. Nevertheless, Schmeling would remain at the top of the division. At this point, it was 1933, and the Nazi party had become the dominant political faction in Germany. Adolf Hitler's anti-Semitic beliefs began to be broadcast to the larger world. Despite Schmeling not being a member of the Nazi party, going so far as to publicly disagree with Hitler's ideology, Schmeling was again portrayed in a negative light by the American public and the media, who saw him as a puppet of the fascists in Europe. When he was scheduled to fight heavy-handed contender Max Baer, a man with Jewish ancestry, Schmeling was immediately considered to be the contest's villain by fight fans. Bayer and his management immediately leaned into this. He had the Star of David sewn into his shorts, and when interviewed, he stated that this fight was defending his faith against the prejudice of the Nazi regime. Bayer, who is now considered to be one of the hardest-hitting fighters to ever live, battered Schmeling for 10 rounds before the referee was forced to intervene and declare the bout a TKO. Already wildly unpopular in the U.S., and now with questions regarding his relevance in the heavyweight division, Schmeling returned to Germany to engage in some tune-up fights. He won three of his next four, but received little to no positive attention from U.S. media outlets. When he was mentioned, it was as a has-been, that's from the Washington Post, or washed up from the Chicago Tribune, or as a Nazi puppet, which is the Post again. Still, his record helped him maintain a high ranking within the division. It was this high ranking that led to the matchup between Schmeling and the undefeated 22-year-old number one contender, Joe Lewis. Many fight fans considered the fight to be an attempt from Lewis's management to get an easy fight that still had a respectable rank beside it to tune him up before his championship bout. Lewis himself seemed to take the fight lightly, spending a large part of his training camp golfing instead of boxing. The public consensus was that Lewis would run through the overmatched Schmeling on his way to the title. Schmeling, however, was undeterred by the negative press. In a pre-fight interview, he stated that he saw something that he could exploit in Lewis's game. The match that fight fans thought would be a quick win for Lewis turned into a 12-round war. Lewis came out strong for the first four rounds, pressuring the German and landing clean combinations. Schmeling responded by jabbing with Lewis and timing his right hand over the jab of his opponent. Schmeling noticed that Lewis had a tendency of dropping his left hand after he threw his jab, and he capitalized on it. 
repeatedly countering the younger man with sharp right hands. In the fourth, a clean one-two jab-straight combination caught Lewis on the chin, and the brown bomber was dropped for the first time in his professional career. Lewis made it to his feet, but was still clearly stunned for the rest of the fight. The German continued to work behind his jab and managed to bust up one of Lewis's eyes. Near the tenth round, Schmeling began to even land right-hand leads on their own without any setup. In the twelfth round, with Schmeling well ahead on the judges' scorecards, the German landed a right-counter cross over the top of Lewis's jab, dropping him for the second time. Lewis failed to rise to his feet, and Schmeling was declared the victor by knockout in a huge upset. The fight's results were as important culturally as they were athletically. Langston Hughes, a noted literary figure and a major force in the Harlem Renaissance, said, I walked down 7th Avenue and saw grown men weeping like children, and women sitting in the curbs with their head in their hands. All across the country that night, when the news came that Joe was knocked out, people cried. On the other hand, in Germany, celebrations broke out across the country. Adolf Hitler reached out to Schmeling's wife with flowers and a congratulatory letter. Nazis across the world were overjoyed, believing that Schmeling's victory over a black man was a sign that their bigoted ideology was correct. After the Lewis fight, Schmeling began negotiating for a title bout against world heavyweight champion James J. Braddock. Braddock was known as the Cinderella Man for his unusual life story and has been the topic of numerous books and movies over the years. Schmeling was eventually denied his chance at a world title fight, however, when talks fell through due to the association of Schmeling with the Nazis. Instead, Braddock would face Joe Lewis in 1937 to defend his belt. Despite knocking down Lewis with a big left hand in the first round, Braddock would eventually get beaten down as Lewis landed a high volume of strikes. In the eighth round, Lewis landed a hard right hand that cut open Braddock's lip and sent him to the canvas, becoming the only fighter to ever knock out Braddock. Lewis was finally champion. Overnight, he became a symbol of African-American resilience and heart. Huge celebrations erupted across the country. To emphasize Lewis's cultural importance, I'll use some more words from Langston Hughes. I know I quoted him already, but the man is away with words. He stated, Each time Lewis won a fight in those depression years, even before he became champion, thousands of black Americans would throng out into the streets all across the land to march and cheer and yell and cry because of Joe's one-man triumphs. I marched and cheered and yelled and cried too. Joe Lewis himself, however, was not celebrating. Instead, he was brooding, remembering the only loss on his record and the only man to ever defeat him. Immediately after winning the title, he was quoted as saying, I don't want to be called champ until I whip Max Schmeling. Meanwhile, despite his lack of popularity in America, Schmeling had become a national hero in Germany, and his image was utilized constantly in Nazi propaganda. Schmeling's previous victory over Lewis was repeatedly used by Goebbels and other Nazi officials as proof of Aryan superiority. Nazi state press made statements such as, no black man could ever defeat Schmeling, and repeatedly told American reporters that Schmeling's earnings would be used to make tanks in Germany. Schmeling, who was not a Nazi but simply a German, resented the German media's focus on him. He rejected a prestigious Nazi award, the Dagger of Honor, given by Hitler himself. When Nazi authorities pressured him to fire his Jewish manager, a man named Joe Jacobs, Schmeling instead expressed admiration and respect for Jacobs and refused to fire him. Years later, it would be confirmed that Schmeling actually secretly hid away two young Jewish boys during Kristallnacht, or the Night of Broken Glass. This was an incredibly dark event where groups of Nazis rampaged through Jewish neighborhoods in Berlin, 
violently destroying their homes and businesses while killing and raping them in the streets. In response to Schmeling's apparent contrarian attitude, the Nazi authorities separated him from his wife to avoid defection, and began having an armed guard follow him from city to city. A Nazi publicist also began traveling with Schmeling to refute any anti-Nazi statements he may make while on the road. At one point, the situation grew so tense between Schmeling and Nazi authorities that his manager suggested that they flee the country. Schmeling famously shook his head and responded, Once a German, always a German. Of course, this mattered little to the American media. They portrayed Schmeling as a Nazi and a puppet of Hitler, despite him standing up to Hitler repeatedly. So when Joe Lewis versus Max Schmeling was booked for June 22, 1938, the fight was viewed by the public as a battle between America and Nazi Germany. Suddenly, Lewis, a black man, was seen as a symbol of hope against the Axis powers. A few weeks before the fight, Lewis visited President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. After leaving the White House, Lewis thought, I knew I had to get Schmeling good. I had my own personal reasons, and the whole damned country was depending on me. This time, Lewis took training extremely seriously, disappearing from public eye for weeks, sparring and drilling in his camp in New Jersey. Conversely, when Schmeling arrived in America, his hotel room was being picketed by anti-Nazi protesters. His room was littered with trash, death threats, and cigarette butts. Several members of his team actually ended up quitting to avoid the pressure altogether. The day of the fight, Yankee Stadium was filled with over 70,000 fans, with politicians, artists, celebrities, and German authorities mixing alongside boxing fans in the crowd. Another 60 million people, nearly half of the U.S.'s population, tuned into the fight on the radio. When the bell rang, Schmeling came out of his corner hoping to replicate the last fight, to draw out the bout and land his jab while timing right hands over a long period of time. Lewis came out hoping to end the contest early. He quickly closed the distance and began working in his famous combinations. Constantly pressuring, he threw a leaping left hook and then clinched, never letting Schmeling set up his jab or the rest of his methodical style. He battered Schmeling in the clinch with hooks to the body and uppercuts to the head. After dropping Schmeling three times in the first round, the referee called off the contest and declared Lewis winner by KO. Radio coverage of the event went dead all over Germany as soon as the referee called the fight for Lewis. Schmeling's loss would reject Nazi claims of racial superiority, and his image was dropped from all state media as a result. Hitler would later get his revenge for the boxer's loss and insubordination by personally making sure Schmeling was drafted into the German army as a paratrooper. Schmeling would later be honorably discharged after taking a bullet to the knee in the Battle of Crete in 1941. Despite feeling Hitler's anger, he survived through the war and was ignored by Nazi authorities, perhaps because he was too high-profile to openly arrest. During the 1950s, Schmeling began working for the Coca-Cola Company and quickly advanced to an executive role within the German branch of the company. He reached out to Joe Lewis, and the two became good friends. Schmeling would visit America every year to see Joe. Due to the enormous cultural significance of the fight, Lewis's victory over the Hitler-sponsored Schmeling was seen as a victory for all Americans, not just black Americans. Black Americans specifically, however, hit the streets in celebration after Lewis's victory. All throughout the country, crowds of people danced and drank and sang in public. Blues musicians began composing songs of Lewis's victory. Legendary poet Maya Angelou would write, Champion of the world, a black boy, some black mother's son. He was the strongest man in the world. Joe would go on to be the first African-American sports celebrity in the United States. Jack Johnson and Jesse Owens would be other worthwhile contenders. 
However, a third of the country wanted to kill Jack Johnson during his title reign, and Owens never achieved the level of fame that Lewis did. Lewis defended his belt 25 consecutive times after the night was schmilling, a record for all weight classes. He had the longest reign as champion as any boxer in any weight class in history. He later served in the army, stating, There are a lot of things wrong with America, but Hitler ain't gonna fix them. He never saw combat, but repeatedly visited the soldiers in Europe and gave them motivational speeches and boxing seminars. Later in life, Lewis began experiencing drug problems. His finances quickly evaporated, as although Lewis was one of the greatest boxers ever, he still only received a percentage of the pay. The rest went to his managers. In his entire career, Joe earned $4.6 million, but only received about 800000 Nevertheless, he was a very generous man and paid for the homes, cars, and education of all of his friends and family members. He also paid back the government the welfare money his family had received when he was a kid. In the end, a combination of predatory management and poor financial skills resulted in Lewis being effectively bankrupt by the age of 40. He was reduced to becoming a greeter at Caesar's Palace in Las Vegas. During this time, Schmeling, who I'll remind you ran a Coca-Cola factory, reportedly would give Lewis money to make ends meet and pay off his debts. Schmeling and Lewis would remain good friends until Lewis died in 1981. Schmeling, understanding the state of Lewis's finances, paid for the funeral. He also served as one of the pallbearers. Schmeling was a titan of boxing who routinely stood up to one of history's worst dictators. Lewis, while he may be overlooked in modern times in favor of Tyson or Ali, was one of the greatest boxers to ever live and a symbol of racial unity. However, it was the friendship between the two men that truly discredited everything Hitler stood for. It remained one of their greatest triumphs. A little bit of a cheesy feel-good ending there, but at least there are a few cheesy feel-good endings in real life. I've been on a bit of a World War II kick recently, which has resulted in these two back-to-back World War II-based episodes. About once a year, I get an itch that forces me to watch non-stop episodes of World War II in color and reread all of my World War II books, but I think I've gotten it out of my system for the most part. I've decided I'll be posting these on Thursdays from now on. Uh, I know this one was a little longer. We'll see how it goes. If you guys like the longer ones, we'll go longer. If you want shorter, we'll go shorter. We'll see what works. Tune in next week for an episode about Valerie Thomas, the woman who invented the 3D technology for movies and TV. Thanks for listening to Shaking America.